You know, there's an old saying where they say, if you're bored of London, you're bored of life. Well, I say, if you're bored of Brian, you have no life. That's right. It's time for your favorite fortnightly dose of African football. Welcome to the On The Whistle podcast. I'm your host, Zain Nabi. Joining me around the Bri are our regular crew. Believe me, I do not get bored of introducing them. First up, we have the King of Cairo, not the diving Mohammed Salah. It's Ahmed Youssef, the editor of Kingfoot.com. Alongside him, we have former PSL winner Courtney Fries of the once-famed Mighty Maulers Manning Rangers. And of course, our quartet would not be complete without our very own Iron Fist in the Velvet Glove sports media executive, Francis and Quain. Gentlemen, what's up? Good evening, Zay. Good evening, gentlemen. Lovely to see you guys again. Great to see you. Absolute pleasure. Miss you guys. Yeah, good evening, everyone. Uh, looking forward to today's uh, show. Absolutely, absolutely. And we have so much to get into today, guys. In today's show, you're going to hear our exclusive interview with former South African wonder kid Shane Morrison. He burst onto the scene in the 1990s and his talent was so sought after around the world. He was South Africa's version of Freddie Adu. We'll tell you about his highs, we'll tell you about his lows, and we'll tell you what he's doing right now. It was our very own exclusive, secured by Courtney Freeze. It's an interview you're going to want to stick around and listen to. But first, we're going to chew over a few key talkers from the continent. We're going to look at Kaiser Chiefs and their transfer ban, and how the Soweto Giants are on turmoil. We'll also look at the Confederation of African Football Champions League final that's been postponed. But we start off our show by looking at athlete activism in Nigeria. And to dig into all of this today, we've had to make the circle bigger, so to speak. We've got our special guest, Sebrasiso Mjigaliso, who is an award-winning South African journalist and also the deputy editor at Media Powerhouse Sports 24. Spoo, welcome to the show. And we're so grateful you're making your debut on the podcast today. Where in the world are you? I am in Centurion, actually, slap bang in the middle of Johannesburg and Pretoria, uh, to be exact. I won't give any further location details than that, because I don't know who I owe uh, and who I don't owe. Um, <laughs> and it's an absolute pleasure to be on a podcast that I actually uh, listen to. Um, uh, like I'm an avid, avid listener of of the podcast. Uh, I was just saying that I'd uh, listen to the Benoit Suikoto one, but also the Kanu one as well. Um, which I noticed you did. You kind of cheated there, Zayn. Uh, you dug up an old interview, uh, <laughs> but it was great nonetheless. You know what they say: great content is timeless. So one day when yes. I dig this up in two years' time and I run it, <laughs> I'm going to go. We had the multi-talented Sibisisium Jigaliso before he was hosting his equivalent to the Daily Show in the U.S. So, <laughs> you know, or in this modern day and age, you might be able to host it from Centurion. Courtney tells me that's where all the posh people in Johannesburg and Pretoria live. So people like me wouldn't be allowed there. Ooh. And me. Uh, no. <laughs> It's what it used to be. It used to be the posh area. Um, not anymore. Otherwise, I wouldn't be living here either. <laughs> well, listen, this is the 
poshest bra you'll be around or virtual bra you'll be around. And we're so grateful that you are joining our podcast today. And honestly, the biggest story that's dominated African football really hasn't been on the field. What we've seen, and we're going to have to set the scene here, Francis, is mass protests in Nigeria. And for those out there who might not be familiar with what's going on in, 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 in Nigeria, why have we seen these protests in the country? Um, I think it's just one of those uh, culminations of, of baggage uh, moments. Um, they have uh, our special anti-robbery unit called SARS that had come to symbolize a lot of things that were wrong with Nigerian society. And um, I think what was different about this moment was uh, there was a, a movement against the establishment using the protests against the SARS organization with the police force. And it came to symbolize a battle between maybe the youth and their ambitions and the disappointment that they feel with the delivery mechanisms that are in place within the country to fulfill the dreams of the average citizens. But it was championed by artists and athletes um, and popular figures from uh, figures from popular culture. And so you saw people like um, Igalo, for example, after the United game uh, in Paris, Saint-Germain, he was very vocal and quite um, clear with his opinion about the Nigerian government um, and asking for international organizations and other governments to hold the Nigerian government to account. Um, personal opinion, I'm not one of those people who always thinks it's the best way for things to be done. But if there's anything we can say for the moment, which was really powerful to see how sports and entertainment actually have a greater stranglehold almost on the ambitions and the dreams of the average citizens. Um, it was powerful to see how quickly uh, something that would have been really local and maybe covered in international press in a different way, how it was easily amplified and how it got tremendous uh, vibrancy and, and it reverberated on the globe over a matter of hours and days and then all of a sudden you had all these other athletes and 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 artists from different parts of the world also joining in the message with the NSARS campaign until the Nigerian government has actually disbanded the unit, albeit they've created a very similar unit again with just a different name, but you see something happening and but the sad moment I think was I think was the tenth uh, or was it the twentieth of the tenth when you had um, not something, nothing short of a Tiananmen Square moment. It was kind of like on the Lecky tollgate, there was a shooting where the armed forces kind of like shooting against unarmed citizens. And then things kind of degenerated into a very public spat. We're running wars between citizens and authorities. And then of course, some elements of criminality crept in and different facts, but all of it was about the frustrations that people feel. But what was most important was seeing these new voices lending their voices in a new way, I think. And that's where social media came in. It was a new way of connecting people that I think uh, has a lot of people waking up and 
and appreciating that some of these names and faces from non-traditionally political spaces carry more sway than the politicians. Francis, I think that's such an excellent analysis and explanation of what went on. I mean, you've really made sense of the protests and what the people in Nigeria were experiencing and what led to them taking to the streets and the confrontations. And you referenced Odin Egalo. I'm going to read to you part of his um, really heartfelt message that he sent out when he called for action from the international community. And um, what Odin said, uh, and I quote here, is, I'm not the kind of guy who talks about politics, but I can't keep quiet anymore for what is going on back home in Nigeria. I would say, Nigerian government, you are a shame to the world for killing your own citizens. Really strong stuff from, from uh, Igalo. Um, Spoo, I'll bring you in at this point. He wasn't um, the only uh, football player to react. There were many others. Um, who were some of the players who used their platforms on social media uh, and around the world to, to, to raise awareness to what was going on? Yeah, I thought, for me, I thought it was quite incredible that, um, you know, there was quite a widespread level of uh, support for the protests. Um, I, I actually have to pick out a club, eh? uh, Arsenal, um, a, a club that's been supported by a lot of Africans. The reason why I pick out uh, Arsenal, the club, is because sometimes you feel with um, these big multi-billion pound or multi-billion dollar organizations that they they remove themselves from such sensitive matters and they don't want to upset their PR. Um, they might have owners who are Nigerian, they might have board members or stakeholders or you know or partnerships that are commercial. You never really know exactly what the intricate relationships are in the background. And they never want to really upset the apple cart. And they always want to sit on the fence. And Arsenal actually putting out a message to, to in support of, of Nigerians, I thought for me was powerful because Arsenal is a big club in Africa. I, I, would, I would go so far as to say that Arsenal is the, is, is the club of Africans because Without Arsenal, I don't think the English Premier League is that big in 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 the on the continent at all. Um, to see them actually come out and support, and I hope that they take it a, a, a lot further. Um, I was encouraged seeing Nwanko Kanu as well, but this is stuff that you you expect a guy like Kanu to be involved in. But I really thought, from from the Arsenal point of view, that was very very good because it shows that they weren't taking that fan base for granted. Also remember the big um, sort of black support that's that's there in London for Arsenal, you know, mainly because of, you know, the Ian Wrights and, and the Carnews who played for the, the club and the Saul Campbells. Like Africans really, really relate uh, with a club like Arsenal. I'm not an Arsenal fan myself, uh, so no bias there. So this is completely objective. But I really thought... For such an important message, a club like Arsenal uh, did did wonderfully well. Um, uh, players like Osime, Kanu, like I said, it's tough for footballers, eh? For me, I think it's 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 always tough for 
both men and women. Um, in that Igalo post that, that, that you said that they're always reluctant, reticent to, to, to speak out politically because you don't know what the cost will be to your career. Uh, you, might, you will offend somebody. I mean, we've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement, you will offend someone. We're not all going to agree, but it's, it's great to see them not shut up and not sit back and, and, and just enjoy being a manu player if you're a manu player or enjoy the, the, the good things that come with that status. I got to say, seeing Victor Osherman just raise his jersey and do that on the field was such a powerful act. Um, to see Kanu, see Wilfred and Didi hold those blood soaked flags, or not hold them, post them on their social accounts, um, shows you that we're perhaps seeing a more socially conscious athlete, somebody who is willing to forget about the endorsements and try use their position and their sway wherever they are to um, to influence, to, 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 to force the change, or the positive change that we want to see in the world. Why do you think we're seeing that right now, Spoo? Um, well, it's, it's not necessarily new. Um, we've seen it in the in in, in bygone years with uh, sure. Muhammad Ali, John Carlos, Tommy Smith. Yeah, but now it seems to be in but, vogue, doesn't it? Yeah, but now it seems like it, it's not one person carrying the the load. You know, when your Muhammad Ali's were speaking out against social injustice, they paid the full price because they were the only ones. And they were like an island, like Ali paid with four years of his prime um, uh, because of, of taking such a huge stance. And you kind of feel like he would never have if, you, if you, he had like five, six other uh, premium sports stars. Look at basketball and the, the collective bargaining that they've got in the NBA. Um, you know, LeBron James can come out and speak because he knows that uh, somebody else in 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 another team is he's gonna back him up. The NBA Chris Paul is gonna is gonna back him up. He's, uh, Andre Iguodala is gonna back him up. There's there's a lot of them that are brave enough to speak out. I think a lot of it has to do with the moment that we're in around the world. We're in this moment that I I I, I desperately hope we don't let go. Uh, it has been sparked by Black Lives Matter. Um, people are not afraid anymore to speak out. People are speaking out in, in their numbers. And there's a greater sense of unity among um, the disenfranchised or, or the people that have uh, social injustice issues to speak out about, whether they're African or whether they're Black American or African American or, or, or whether they're minority groups in Europe. You know, there's a there's a sense of like something happening in Nigeria um, affects South Africans, which in the past uh, I have to be honest, it wouldn't be the case. But now we we see that you know issues that affect the world affect all of us. Like what happened to George Floyd in in the U.S. affected all of us. I'm a black man in South Africa. You know, getting police brutality. It happened at a time where there was a lockdown here in South Africa and a soldier is alleged to have killed someone 
who was in their own yard and, and was shot at point blank range trying to enforce uh, COVID-19 lockdown rules. You know, that, that that's your class A sense of police brutality, which is what Nigerians are fighting against as well. So I think I think the whole world is kind of standing up and saying, you know what, and footballers, kudos to them, credit to them for, for not sitting back, like we said, and, and enjoying the perks because, you know, it's their relatives as well, you know, their loved ones, their people that they care about that, that are most affected um, by, by everything that's going on. Zbu, if, if, if I may, um, I just want to ask a question because you touched a really interesting point with the position a club like Arsenal took in this particular matter. Um, I have a, a, a slight issue personally with, uh, I think sometimes some, some battles are easier because they fit into the narrative, so to speak. So uh, I would, do you think that an Arsenal would be standing with their players and their supporters if maybe the battle was one around dignity that spoke to a battle maybe between Nigeria or the African space and maybe the UK or the US. And here I'm saying like, hypothetically speaking, if we pick a company like Unilever and we were talking about the products or the pro- a project maybe that they had, or British Petroleum, and the people were saying, we don't like something that they're doing in the Nigeria space. Do you think in that moment, Arsenal mm. would stand or was this a convenient one where everybody yeah. doesn't yeah. like the and this fits into the African dictators or the brutal structures in Africa yeah. and we need to save them? Because there was a part of that that I struggled with, where there was a, a naturally comfortable narrative that spoke to the savage Africans and it's easy to come along and say, yes, let's liberate those people from the oppressive leaders. And it's easy to do it. But sometimes some of those conversations we need to have in our houses as opposed to on the stages. Not because we don't have them or they're not a problem, but because they fit into the stereotypes that are perpetuated all the times about how mismanaged and how poorly run our spaces. That's why I was saying when a gentleman then also calls to external forces to help us fix, I if I was advising the player, I would be saying, say South Africa say Ghana, come speak with, but when we're saying UK or US, come help us and come liberate us. I also don't like that narrative. And I think it's easier than for the clubs or the businesses in that part of the world who are doing it strategically to simply say, we continue to play savior role and you're championing our cause for us. So solutions come from all part of the world to you. So I still wonder if it would be the same that you think the club would champion Mm. If it was slightly more nuanced than the typical stereotypes we have, no, absolutely, Francis. It's 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 a very good question to ask, and I don't know for sure if that's exactly what Arsenal would do. If it was pointed in sort of the British direction uh, or the European direction, and I mean, you look at even even the way people handle anything to do with Chinese issues these days. I look at the treatment of Mesut Ozil who spoke out against the ill treatment of people by the Chinese government and how that has led to a whole lot of events in his Arsenal career that, you know, as has can be pointed down to that moment when, when, when he made a social stand. 
I don't know for sure if, if this is Arsenal being in the right place or how genuine it is. Um, but what I do know is that it it, it is something um, to put out there. It is to show, even if it galvanizes a section of, of, of their supporters to be aware of the of the of the problem even if it it alerts people across the globe elsewhere that aren't aware of the issue you know it's something um i wouldn't turn it down uh at the same time yes those those reservations you have absolutely they they are very very valid and it's 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 not as if there's they are out there campaigning uh against um uh, uh you know brutality uh, from the SARS organization, they put out this message, which I think for me, just take it as that, as a message that they've put out across the world. And it, it's probably no more than that. And 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 they're probably not going to do more. And and we, we shouldn't expect them to do more. We, we should expect more from ourselves. We should hold ourselves accountable and 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 put things right ourselves here on the continent. And what I would say is, one, wow. This is the special stuff that comes around when you're sitting around the bride. So fantastic conversation, guys. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I was once told our podcast is like here, so people don't understand us. But what you guys are saying, everyone's going to understand because you're speaking so articulately, so intelligently. And I was just going to say one thing, Francis, is I completely get your point on the double standard we have for the West versus the East, the North-South divide. I think it's a valid point, and I think it's right to ask those questions. But whenever we see effective change in whatever movement around the world, and I'm all for, I hate to use the cliche, African solutions for Africa, right? We're, we're each other's keepers. We look after each other. We communicate with each other. We want the African Union to be a strong entity that can come in and, and find solutions. And even we know there's divides between sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa and East and West Coast and this language. But I sometimes think that when you have change coming together, it's a groundswell in the country, which you obviously need, but you do need those international partners. You do need people to raise awareness of it. So um, seeing a club like Arsenal, and I think you've asked the right question, um, Francis, do what they've done can only help raise awareness to what Spoo was saying earlier, not to repeat him. It can only be a good thing to have that conversation going to circles that might it might not normally do. And maybe this is a bad analogy I'm going to use now, but it's something we've spoken about, Francis, is why is the Rwandan Tourism Board advertising on Arsenal as opposed to other African teams or African countries? Why are they not pumping their money in other parts of Africa and focusing on African tourists? Well, they are doing that, right? Because Arsenal is such a good brand. It's known all over the continent. It's known all over the world. And it's a way of using the club as a megaphone to get out what's going on with um, tourism in the country and how they're looking at that as a source of income. Now, we're not going to sit here and talk about whether tourism income is, um, is something they should be doing and whether it's <laughs> it's, it's sustainable. I feel like I'm on podcast. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to be like, what podcast did we just go as an athlete, Courtney, you've been in a change room. You've sat with, with, with players. Do players actually want to play a role? Do players want to take a stance? Do players want to use their platforms to affect change? Um, 
how have things changed since you were in a in a in a in a change room in the uh, Jurassic period? Uh, <laughs> I, what I will say, Zane, is that uh, at that particular time, you must remember, as humans, we all hate injustice and we all hate bad things happening to anyone around the world. So let's just start there. But did we have the platforms? at that particular time to be able to express our feelings in regards to this? Not at all, okay? So this is the power of social media, which can be so wrong in some areas, doing a fantastic job to allow people the platforms. Because what social media being used correctly at this point in time is providing is a tsunami of support and, and, and a stand up against this sort of injustice in Nigeria. And it's been highlighted, like the, the Spoo was speaking about the Muhammad Ali situation. That was quite an isolated situation. I imagine if social media was around at that time to the way it is now, it would have been a bigger broadcast story. What is happening in Nigeria is a humanity problem that shouldn't happen anyway. But what highlights it is the positiveness of social media. And I think this is why people brought social media together with other positives as well, so that we can bring these type of things to the front and people can then start listening and change can start happening. Uh, going back to your question, in my time, we didn't have that type of thing in order to uh, bring our problems um, to the front. We also didn't have coaches that wanted to listen. There's another thing. As we bring an end to this really interesting discussion, I wanted to get a perspective from the North and from you, Ahmed. Um, you're from a part of the world where your fans are naturally socially conscious. Uh, the fan bases in, in Egypt, the fan bases in, in North Africa um, are always lobbying for some sort of change. Um, what was your perspective and what was the North African perspective on um, what the football players and what was going on in Nigeria? Yeah, I mean, um, kind of as we've mentioned before, how you just mentioned how powerful um, kind of the fans were in in, in North Africa. I mean, in Egypt, for example, um, a lot of the fans were heavily involved in the uprising in, in 2010, and it was kind of a movement that really started from football and the ultras within the football world. Um, so it's always been ingrained there, um, and it's always kind of. Um, interesting because when kind of politics gets involved with the sport then it kind of gets a bit um especially seeing in Egypt gets a bit um kind of nasty and, and we've seen over the years the ultras of Ahli and Zemedic being dissolved by the government and they kind of ban banned them as groups because uh, of, of how you know, strong they are politically um and so I guess it's uh in going on to that for the players themselves we've, we've seen um you know some players have sometimes supported uh, one side against another. We saw Mohamed Abutreka, who um, was vocal, a kind of supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, and you know, now he's ousted from the country and he's a footballing hero if he can't um, yeah. go back. And, and that's somebody who stood up for what he thought was right. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's, yeah, but I, I think, um, yeah, it, it, so in a way, it is good to see someone like the guy who's um, not afraid of consequences, you know. He's, he's made that decision. He wants to speak about it himself. Um, so kind of, I'm always kind of, you know, I always think it's good that, that you know, they, they feel that, that passionately and it's a platform they should be sharing. Um, now going back to Arsenal, but specifically kind of talking, you know, how they went, you know, um, and, and they mentioned SARS. 
for me, I think um, it, it seems like it's uh, the, the reason they're speaking out it kind of is what suits the club. Um, I mean, when you look at the Ozil situation, Ozil was begging them for, for years to speak about the situation in China, um, and he's felt so vocal about it, and they've never really supported him at all. Um, and in fact, they've actually said we don't view, we don't agree with your, we, we don't, you know, we have, we don't have a view on it, um, which in, you know, in essence, kind of, you know, being a silent, you're with the perpetrator there. Um, but it's good that they're speaking about this, but I just wonder whether, um, you know, they're doing it because they think, you know, uh, they have maybe investment from China or there's a lot of money, more money to be made in China and, and they're thinking, um, you know, we don't want to upset China, but, you know, we, we want to support the, you know, the, the, um, and as some said, you know, in Nigeria, Arsenal is such a big club, so they might just be wanting to support the people there and they're not worried about, you know, the small financial losses they'll gain, they'll lose from it. Thank you. That's excellent perspective and, and certainly a point that ties in with, with what Francis, um, was talking about a little earlier. But as we bring this discussion um, to an end before we move on to the others, and honestly, I thank everyone for their contribution here. Um, Spoo, maybe we give you the last word. Do you think we're going to continue to see a trend of athletes using their platform, uh, particularly football players um, on the continent in Africa? Is this something that we can expect to see more? Or is this a one-off in, in the sense of what we've seen in Nigeria? Um, I certainly hope it's not a one-off. Uh, that was my fear as well uh, with Black Lives Matter, um, was that you get all the attention, you get everything from social media right now, and it'll be great. You voice everything, and then next week, something else will take the attention away, and some, some, some other injustice, uh, Lord forbid, will take place, and... and 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 uh, the Nigerian uh, SARS protests will no longer be fashionable, um, for lack of a better word. And it, it really is the concern. I really hope that athletes, no matter what it is that they are passionate about, that they really use their platforms. Um, you know, Courtney mentioned social media being powerful. We know the, the, the evils of social media, certainly. But we know what a powerful, uh, what a powerful medium it is when used correctly. Uh, it can be incredible. I mean, we've seen it in North Africa as well, uh, with uprisings and people taking power into their own hands, and 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 you know, really, really affecting change uh, for themselves. Uh, and you know, I, I really, really hope that within the athletes' environment within that cocoon of of you know high performance guys like where you see guys like marcus rashford uh raheem sterlings guys like that i really hope like they bandy together and and they say right guys we've we've really had enough of this we've we've had enough of issue a issue b we we really have had enough of being second class citizens in the world um and you know, there's not enough, there's no amount of money in whatever field uh, you earn that will, you know, quieten the heart when it's restless and when you're not happy. Uh, and I think that's what Marcus Rashford, in his quest to end child poverty in the UK, kind of realized at, at the age of 22. 
is that there, there really is no ceiling to money. Um, but where, where the heart is concerned, there, there is a level of, of contentment and peace you can attain. And you can attain that by, by, by going after things that will impact people or impact a time period long after you're gone. And I, my hope is that even when the um, big reactions, when everybody stopped talking about it, that athletes really, really look at themselves and, and find the thing, if they haven't found it yet, that's important to them outside of football because I guarantee it it will it will that impact will make them as happy if not happier um than 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 the satisfaction they get from from the profession that they love that we all love that we that we love them see carry out out there every Saturday. If I may interject quickly Zane, I think uh, what Brother Subisiso was saying is truly powerful. But I think the onus is more on us than it is on the athletes. Because the truth is they're human beings just like every single one of us, but we yeah. tend yeah. to expect one thing of them. If you're a player, we only almost want you just to be a player. And so the yeah. system is built in such a way yeah. where the journalist who sits with this gentleman after a game only wants to talk about the game, even though the player wants to talk about other things. They're not the ones, they're the ones who don't create the atmosphere or the platform that allows them. So like what Courtney was talking about before when he said about the absence of platforms for the athletes before, it was before the, because the platforms before belonged to somebody else. And today it's personal. So you can post yourself, the things you want to talk about, and they get great attraction. And now we're following that. And so the clubs used to be able to, there would always be a press officer there. If the journalist even wanted to ask a question that was outside of the remit of the game, and the player wanted to answer, the press officer also still said, you can't do that. And they won't because they would get final copy on it. But now they don't have to ask anybody's permission. Yeah. Yeah. Igalo stood on a pitch after a game, took his phone, recorded his message and blasted it. It was beautiful. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're, called, so, they're called gatekeepers. <laughs> they, exactly. They so the gatekeepers now for us. And, and then that's why I think most important part is for us as consumers of a product to accept that these athletes and artists are more than just what it is we consume them as you may like the like with Klopp coming out and saying i can't help but admire rashford even though i'm the liverpool boss he's saying beyond the rivalries we have this tribal identity we have in the game what this gentleman is doing deserves respect and so I would encourage others to. These things have always happened in the game. They've just never had the opportunity to be amplified or for the message to get out. These are the reasons why we created Best of Africa back in the day was for the same thing. The conversations weren't new then. When Didier Drogba and his teammates were kneeling down and asking Ivorians to stop a war, the only reason we got to know about it was because it was seen on TV. And then it was almost like it was like, uh, an amplified moment, but the truth was it was their brothers and their sisters and their cousins and their aunties and uncles who were dying or who were hungry. So it wasn't estranged from their spirits, they're human beings. And so they have the same feelings about every subject that we all have, but what's different is very often they have more responsibility. So we ask them to be involved in many places. And then when they do, we take exception if we don't agree with their opinion and the spaces that we want them to get involved in. So we must understand that they're whole, they're rounded human beings. 
opinions will differ. Somebody who's a friend of the Nigerian government right now might still think, I think SARS should still be there because we need them to protect us because we have money. If you don't have money, <laughs> you'd be saying these guys only come and oppress us. So it, it's viewpoints and how we package them is important, but most important is how we see these participants. And the more we see them as human beings and understand that some of them are fathers, some of them are mothers, some of them are aunties and uncles, some of them are children, some of them have members of their families who suffer from cancer. So today they want to talk about breast cancer. It's not because they're an athlete and they have a responsibility to, it's because they care. They're human beings and something's touched them. Maybe a person's mother or father has, or maybe they want to shave their mustache like our brother. <laughs> oh, this Tottenham man, it's okay. <laughs> But you Brother know, Ahmed. they will have a cause. <laughs> I know. Brother Ahmed, mustache off. It's important. But in that moment is the ability to understand what the Movember movement then is and to say, here's why I'm doing it. Maybe I lost my father to, or maybe I lost my brother to, or an uncle to, to prostate cancer. Or I just think we need to talk about this more because it's the biggest killer of men than any other thing. But people just don't know. And because I'm a man, I want to, but somehow in the press, we'll talk about it like it's it's extremely noble because he should only be thinking about football. And so it's yeah. impressive that he thinks yeah. about something else. He's yeah. like, no, he does. Yeah. It's only normal. Sorry for my rant. <laughs> no, wisdom. And honestly, guys, loving the discussion and loving where we're going with it. And it feels like, you know, we could throw another log on the braai and we'd be here for a little longer. But I would like us to politely move along. You mentioned Brother Ahmed with Movember, um, and we're going to get to that in the show. But we also have the small beer of the fact that the CAF Champions League has now been postponed. Ahmed, bring us up to speed with what's the latest in our showpiece continental um, cup final. Yes, yeah, so um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the CAF uh, Champions League semi-final from last season, actually, um, was postponed firstly due to COVID, um, and it was due to be played uh, some of the games last month. And um, uh, the first semi-finals were uh, the two-legged games between Wired, Casablanca and Al-Ahli, which uh, Al-Ahli came out uh, winners there. Um, but days before the second leg of the um, semi-final between Raja Casablanca, and Zamelik, uh, 16 uh, Raja Casablanca players were uh, reported to tested positive for COVID. Um, and so with just short notice, the, the match had to be postponed uh, and, and they kept you know, continuous testing um, until eventually the, you know, the squad was free. But um, so, so now the, the second leg of the semi-final is being played on Friday uh, in Cairo. Um, Zamelik go into this game 1-0 up and um, you know, in the last uh, in the last episode, kind of discussed how um, Zamelik's record at home is phenomenal, and I think they've kind of lost a handful of games in the last three three years at home. It's been very tough for for Roger Casablanca. Um, but having said that, in the first leg, Roger Casablanca was a much better side. Um, but essentially, this meant that the final, which was meant to be played on Friday, would need to be delayed, and um, the final, which will be played in Egypt, um, has now been moved to the twenty seventh of November. Um, which uh, is due to some of the parliamentary elections uh, going on, and that's kind of um, 
So the clubs aren't happy about that because, you know, it's semi-final being played on Friday. They want to get the final over and done with, but, uh, they don't have to wait. And, um, so the final will be played in, in, uh, in Alexandra on 27th of uh, November. And, um, as a Zemelic fan, I hope that, uh, Zemelic go through, but I think for most football fans, um, it would be very interesting for the first time ever to have Ahli and Zemelic, the two biggest clubs in Egypt and arguably the two most um, decorated clubs in Africa. Head to head for the um, for the Champions League, the African Champions League, um, it would be uh, something pretty special. So it looks like you've made your prediction. You want the Cairo derby, but not in Cairo. <laughs> well, uh, no, I, I, yeah, it's uh, it'll be an interesting one. That um, and it's a shame that it's not being played in, in the Cairo International Stadium, but uh, for security reasons, most big games are, are played in the, the Borgul Arab Stadium in Alexandria because. Uh, it would be it would be great to be in Cairo, but again, it wouldn't make a difference because um, there, there would be no fans really. And what's your early steer, or maybe your midway steer on Pizzo Mosimani? He's settling in. They've won the league. He's won two league titles in the space of a couple of weeks. Although when he joined the club, they had the they had the um, the title sort of uh, sewn up already. So I mean, he could be in this rare position to win two league titles. And a continental <laughs> tournament. And surely that's got to be coach of the year, right? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, You're in Egypt, and we've got Spoo, who's in Centurion. And for those who don't know, Centurion's not that far away from Pretoria, where uh, is the home of Sundowns. Yeah, it would be um, a pretty pretty special story if he managed to win the two league titles and the CAF Champions League. But, I mean, the the, uh, the league in Egypt was pretty much a, you know nearly there, and it was a formality. Um, you know, he didn't. He, you know, it was harder for him not to win the league when he when he joined. Um, and that's going to be the, you know, the story for him going forward. If he doesn't win the league, it's regarded as a as a um, as a, a a negative as opposed to winning the league being a positive. Um, but straight away, he kind of instilled his four four two formation, and, and um, it's been yeah interesting to see how he's kind of he's done that. Um, brought back uh, Marlon Rossin, who was kind of a striker out of the squad, really, and, and people thought his time was over, but he's managed to rejuvenate him. So um, it's great to see that. Um, but kind of all positive so far. And I think, regardless of who the opposition are, um, Ahli are the favourites to win the Champions League. Um, so, uh, especially with Pizzo. I've got to talk about Pizzo. And um, as I follow him on social media, one of the most uh, touching things I saw over the weekend was he paid reference to the previous Alakli coach in his tweets and thanked him for the team he had left. You know, it's, it's not very often that a manager thanks the, in, uh, the, the, the outgoing manager because he said this guy had basically set up the winning of the league and he's got to give him credit for that. And I just thought that was a very humbling thing. He didn't have to do that. He's sitting in the hot seat um but he, he he made reference to the out the outgoing coach as well i tell you what courtney that's why pizza not only wins the league he also gets the spirit cup of coaches because he represents <laughs> more than just winning francis what do you think about that it's really really good absolutely love it and courtney has to give him the cup himself well i tell you what maybe we could introduce it as a new award at the best of africa awards and we get Courtney to give Pizzo Mosimane the Spirit Cup. Do you know what the Spirit Cup is, Sibusiso? Having a cooking clue, but I know who's going to win it next year. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
It is the trophy that Courtney Freeze was awarded when he started playing over 35 football. And he um, went to his local teams in, in Essex, their, their award ceremony. And um, look, he's holding it up oh, right there. You can have a look oh, at it. Oh, oh, okay. And, and they had a very special prize for Courtney. Not most improved player. Not player not of the season. Player, yeah. <laughs> man of steel. What did they That's give it. you, Courtney? Lady Spirit Cup. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard in my life of that award. <laughs> but Kualusha Pualua said, accepted yeah. Courtney, they gave it to you. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't get bigger than Kalusha Vualia, the Zambian and African legend. And, you know, we loved having a podcast. Uh, we, we had him on a podcast. Um, so go and look in our archives. Just search for Kalusha Vualia. It's a podcast you won't want to listen. We talked about what makes the perfect African 10. Honestly, really. Mm. I, I might go back and listen to that. I'm going to move us. Well, you've got to listen, Nasibusi, because you'll love it. You'll love it. I'm going to bring us yeah. from the north to the south because the glamour boys of African football, Kaiser Chiefs, have been hit down by transfer ban. Let's get straight into the spoo. Why have they been given a ban? What is this all about? Okay, so long story short is um, Kaiser Chiefs uh, 2018 signed a player uh, called Dax. Um, he's uh, from Madagascar from a club called Forza Juniors FC. And he was, I think, the player of the year there a couple of years. And they were signing his attacking midfielder slash striker, can play on the wing. Um, his full name, I really can't pronounce and I would offend not only him, but Lord knows how many people <laughs> I would offend if I, if I attempted. So I'm going to stick with Max. Um so basically, Chiefs, they asked for a, a, a fee for his services um, to say, look, this is our player. This is who we are. You can't just come in and sign him. Obviously, they were offering him big money and he was willing to go. So he signed a contract with Chiefs, even though he was still a Forza Juniors player. And Chiefs were like, who are you? Uh, never heard of you. They pulled the old, uh, who are you? Uh, on Forster Juniors, and um, basically they didn't pay him a cent, uh, pay Forster Juniors a cent, and 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 they just um, brought in the player to South Africa, unveiled the player, gave him a jersey number, put him on the park, the works. So obviously Forster Juniors felt scorned. He's a registered player of theirs. He took the matter up with FIFA. FIFA ruled in their favor. Um, and found that, um, you know, uh, Kaiser Chiefs were in breach, a uh, heavy breach of a lot of FIFA rules in, in that transaction. Uh, Kaiser Chiefs contested it at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, their sanction was two transfer windows banned, uh, and, and, and they lost. Uh, it was a pretty open and shut case, uh, to be fair. Amateur clubs... Uh, benefit from the solidarity fund where if you're Yaria Touré and you get signed by Barcelona from wherever, 
every time you move, 5% of your transfer fee uh, trickles back down to your amateur club. So that's taken a lot of work to do. But in them producing that sort of flagship product, they've had to deal with a lot of what Chiefs has done, which is bypass the whole system and just take a player. Because if you take a player, then you're not only robbing Forza Juniors, you're robbing the another amateur club that might have benefited from that transfer fee because of this FIFA Connect or this FIFA Clearinghouse that now exists. So now they're very, very strict on on those kind of things. And and basically they threw the book at at, at Chiefs and Chiefs who, who basically acted in a in a very pompous and, and arrogant manner, I believe. So when you look at this, Chiefs are a club who just had their 50th anniversary. They were on course to winning the last PSL title. Coronavirus hit. They came back out of it and virtually lost the league on the last weekend where Pizzo and Sundowns uh, secured their fifth title in seven years, right? When you look at Kaiser Chiefs and what they want to do and what they want to achieve, this transfer ban surely got to knock back any ambition for the PSL title to get into Africa and to compete for the uh, the CAF Champions League. Yeah, I know it's 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 hit them very very hard, um, and it's a double transfer ban as well. So it's not only just for this window, January as well. Um, so I, it's hit them already. Like they they lost three 0 to Sundowns um, in 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 their first league game. Then they lost 3-0 to their arch-rivals, Orlando Pirates, last weekend. In, in the first cup game, uh, it's called the MTN8, the first uh, uh, trophy to be competed in. And that's the first leg of the semifinals. And, and it's likely that they could cop another, another 2 or 3-0 against Pirates in, in the second leg. And this you're talking losing two Soweto derbies and losing 3-0 to your title rivals from last season in a matter of a month, in a matter of four weeks. It's a disastrous uh, period. And then and then you can't even do anything about it as well. You, it's, it's not like they can then go in the transfer market quickly and, and, and patch things up. So they've got a new coach, Gavin Hunt. Well, he's um, got a new silver lining, right? He's the man who's gone and won titles almost everywhere he's gone, you know, highly successful at Supersport. Can he fashion a success at the Glamour Boys? And we know that he doesn't necessarily play the most glamorous football. I don't know. I'm I'm very unsure of Gavin Hunt. I, I have to be honest. Um, he has a lot of admirers. And unfortunately, look, as a person, I think it's great. It's good for a laugh, great for a quote. And then good for a whiskey as well, uh, Francis. So he's like Courtney, in other words, on Francis. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever collide, believe me, um, you will enjoy you will enjoy a whiskey or ten uh, with Gavin Hunt. Um, but for me, I don't think Kaiser Chiefs are an ambitious enough African club. This is the Kaiser Chiefs of Lucas. Uh, Khadebe, uh, the Kaiser Chiefs, really, that's the biggest club in in South Africa. I wouldn't say they're the biggest club, South African club in Africa. I'd 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 put that to Orlando Pirates actually, because for me, they've never taken the African continent 
and the competitions as seriously as they should. Um, they've always been very dismissive. They're the only South African club ever to get suspended for not honoring uh, a, an African encounter uh, because it came, I think it was too close to a South African league game and they decided not to honor it. And they've got a, a coach that's never done well in those African competitions as well. Gavin Hunt has been at least five times on in the CAF Champions League. He won the league three times with... Um, uh, a super sport united that that's three automatic qualifications and he, and he he won the league with with bidvest vets and finished runner up with with bidvest vets and uh he earned two calf spots um those years as well and he did nothing notable i don't think he even made the group stages if he did he, he's never gotten out of the group stages of the calf champions league and then you compare him to pizzo musimane when Pito took over Mamelodi Sundowns, I, I can remember distinctly because I was one of the guys that was highly critical of Johan Nieskins. Uh, Sundowns were one place off the relegation spot. And uh, Johan Nieskins had been trying to get Sundowns to play this Dutch brand of, of football with players that are... I, I, can't even play a basic 4-4-2. Like, he had... And then he would berate them like they were school children and he would absolutely destroy the confidence of these guys. So he wasn't trying to fit the system to the players. He was trying to get the players. And if you're a coach and you come to South Africa, you've got the players that you've got, mate. Um, that's, <laughs> that's what you get. It's all like this podcast. I've got one. <laughs> yeah, a little bit like, yeah, you know... You, you get what you get. I, I sort of think we're like the old Wimbledon, Tim. Put it in the mixer. Put it in the mixer. Get it to Francis in the front. Put it in the mixer. That's that's what you're going to get with Kaiser Chiefs. So, long story short, um, for me, I think Gavin Hunt fits what Chiefs have, or have been for years. Haven't taken uh, the CAF Champions League seriously enough. They weren't jealous enough to see Pito Musimane lift uh, the African trophy in, in 2016 and see him like, I mean, he, he, he obliterated Alakli at home at Lucas Moripe. Uh, Lucas Moripe is not far from me, actually. It's a less than 30 minutes, uh, drive from, from, from my house. I don't go there often because the traffic getting out of there is, is, is terrible. Uh, but on a good game, like the one against Alakli, uh, it's, is well worth the, the traffic. So, and, and, you know, Sundowns, they don't have the best facilities. They don't have all the fans in, in, in the country. They don't even have a third of the football fans. But very ambitious. Uh, they had an ambitious coach, coach in Pizzo Musimani. I mean, he was talking st stuff like he wanted to win the, the FIFA Club World Cup, which is ludicrous when you think. I think only Corinthians in the last 10 years are, uh, are the only team to have won it outside of Europe. Um, and the... I think the only reason I remember that is because they beat Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> it was beautiful. Uh, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Boo, thank you very much for giving us that synopsis. Thank you very much for the analysis. I'm going to ask this as the, um, as the final questions. Um, when you look at the Premier Soccer League, if I was to ask you for who are the top three at the end of the season, um, what would your predictions be? 
Uh, Premier Soccer League, uh, I think Mamelodi Sundowns, Orlando Pirates. And I think Super Sport United, they're always in 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 a in and around there. Um so here's my question. If Mamalodi Sundowns win and they've got three coaches, like two coaches and a senior coach, never quite seen a coaching structure like this, which coach will lift the title? Well, if you notice the shape of the trophy, it's got two handles on the side and, and a, a bottom to kind of prop it up. So I think the three wise men will be able to do a nice little uh, three-pronged uh, uh, trophy uh, celebration there. Tell you what. This is a wise man. The wise man. <laughs> before, didn't they? Didn't Liverpool have a trophy for it or something at some point in time? I wouldn't be sure. Freeze, come on in. You're, you're, you're well, the wasn't Liverpool. there somebody upstairs? No, there was uh, at, uh, there was Roy Evans. There were two. There were Roy Evans and Gerard Houllier. Uh, Roy uh, Gerard Houllier said, "No, no um, sorry, say that again, Francis." Who was upstairs? Who was your director of football at the time? No, they didn't have a director of football at the time. It was just those two uh, managers, co-managers, and which Gerard Houllier said that Roy Evans insisted that he come in, which was a lie. Um, <laughs> But uh, the joint manager thing doesn't work. I, I think there's an implosion waiting to happen at Sundown. The, the reason why the team may be successful for a period is because there are good players there. But uh, three managers in one particular place, especially with someone like Steve Compella, who's very knowledgeable about the game, I just don't know how they're going to make that work. All right? It's never worked anywhere else in the world. I don't know how that's going to work. Doesn't. I just don't know how it's going to work. So if you had to ask me my top three, I would reshuffle that. I would go um, Orlando Pirates, Super Sport, and Amazulu. That's what I would go with. Amazulu for the top three? Wow. That is a big call. That's a uh, big call. You must remember, uh, as I told you, Zane, my uncle got the job as the assistant manager at Amazulu. So I'm pulling the strings from behind the scenes. <laughs> Um, I, I'm pulling the scene, you know. I'm, playing around, I'm, I'm, I'm telling him what to do. <laughs> wow, and this, that's not Sunokusutu. I like what they're doing with their new owner, I like the ambition yeah. of the club. Yeah, ambitious uh, findings as well. It is a bold decision. Well, I'll tell you what, you had it here first. I think, so, oh, sorry, go on. Uh, you guys mentioned there about the uh, the dual managers lifting the trophy. I, I don't think anything can get worse than uh. The dual captains of um, Lampard and Terry in the Champions League final, both fighting to hold it, and Singer are ruining it all by just jumping in front of them and taking it before they probably lift it. So, in full kit, don't forget full in kit. Full yeah, kit. Exactly. even if you don't play boots. Yeah, tell you what, you can't buy class. Like you know why you say that because we have Sibusiso and Jigaliso one of the classiest journalists. Spoo, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for your passion. Thank you for your energy. Thank you for all the amazing perspective you articulate um, in such a great way. And um, I know that uh, this is an African football podcast, but for those out there, you have also written a really good book on Tando Manana, who was uh, one of South Africa's first uh, Black Springboks. So um, if people want to buy that book, where can they get it? Uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, yeah, can easily get it on Amazon. If you're listening in from South Africa, don't take a lot. 
Um, if you're in Port Elizabeth, you can actually get it in Tano Manana's boot. It drives around. <laughs> <laughs> For no good reason. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. And <laughs> if people out there want to hit you up on social media, where can they find you? I'm at Sbu, S-B-U underscore Mjigeli, so M-J-I-K-E-L-I-S-O on everything. It's at Sbu underscore Mjigeli, so on everything. So, yeah, just um, as soon as you see my name on this pod and you can just copy and paste my surname. I'm I'm the most famous of them Jigelisos, so it's not likely <laughs> that there'll be three or four others. <laughs> well, listen, thank you for joining us on the pod. We wish you well. And you know what? You have an open invite, so you can come back right on in whenever you like. We've loved having you here. No, absolutely. This is fun, guys. Um, absolutely love it. Love what you guys are doing. Like I said, avid listener myself, so... I'm really looking forward to listening in on, on some of the interviews that you guys do. I think they're brilliant. There's witty, uh, funny stuff. There's also some serious stuff. I mean, we we uh, it can be daily show on one day and, and then it can turn into a, a CNN late night news and, and, and uh, political debates and, uh, all, all rolled up in one. So So, yeah, I love it. It's, it's 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 a great 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 show well thank you and here's here's a question if if you if we could speak to one african football player legend or current or newsmaker who'd you like who'd you like to hear from who'd you like us to go after i actually think george Ware. george Ware is is one guy if you haven't had him already uh george Ware will give you everything that this podcast is about oh, everything course i tell yeah, you, the football if we get george Ware, we'll get you back on in some capacity to yes. ask your question no i'm not worthy i am not <laughs> worthy <laughs> we'll we'll drop courtney from the starting lineup for that one <laughs> can't, can't, can't happen not to speak to that man <laughs> el presidente el presidente cannot happen yes. cannot happen I have to be in on it. Cool. Spoo, go well, brother. Thank you for your time. We'll be in touch. Yes, guys. Love it. Keep up the good work. All right, guys, we're back. And uh, in this segment of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about former South African international and wonder kid Shane Morrison. Courtney Fries caught up with him. Courtney, I think we need to put in context just what a talent Shane Morrison was. There'll be a generation of people like yourself who'll remember him very clearly for his promise and what he offered South African football. But there'll be a lot of people out there who will not be familiar with Shane's achievements. Well, uh, a lot of people, yes, you're right, won't be familiar with his achievements because when you're talking about the top of the game, Shane is not someone that exploded into Bafana Bafana and eventually went on to make a career out of football. But respectfully, what he did in the junior part of the game is something that has to be really respected. Uh, captains at the, the junior levels of the game um, had the break to go over to Germany as well. And it, you don't get those breaks unless you really have something in you. So th that has to be respected. And then coming back into the country and then playing at Amazulu and getting a, a crack at Orlando Pirates 
um, Shane has really taken large steps in South African football. It could have been bigger, as he admitted, when you listen to the interview. Um, but his story is fascinating. It absolutely is. And Shane Morrison at the time had the same raw talent as a Dalron Buckley, as a Benny McCarthy. That generation, that golden generation of South African players who were produced. And for those of us who never saw Shane play, what were his best attributes, Courtney? Well, I like to, and I've, I've coined the phrase, I like to describe Dalron and Benny McCarthy as finishers. These were guys at the top end of the pitch that made their names in and finishing the team's move. But what they did not have is what something that Shane Morrison had. Shane could be described as a carrier, someone that could carry the entire team and, and move the ball from transitionally from defense into attack all on his own and comfortably do that. And had Shane been provided the opportunities, given that belief and that support that he needed at the most vulnerable times, I felt Shane could definitely have moved into the superstar category. Courtney, thank you for that. Let's listen to your amazing interview with Shane Morrison. And we're going to start off by talking to him about his move to Germany, where he went on a trial to um, Bochum, which was the same team where Dalron Buckley cut his teeth as a junior and professional. Take a listen to this. Yeah, I think the, the footballing side of it was, was a bit challenging itself because I think I, besides Dalron and the person where we stayed, not much people spoke English. So the communication was a bit of a, a major issue. So uh, I think that was one of the stumbling blocks while I was there. But from the, the football side, the, it was actually a good setup that they had there because it was a professional team. I think I could have been there for two to three weeks uh, in Germany uh, while training and trialing. But I just couldn't settle in in the, in the country itself. I actually battled. Uh, the weather at that time was very, very hot and humid, which we were a little bit used to. It went, uh, opposite of you know the cold and snow weather that they do also get so the weather was it was hot humid the the country itself i didn't really get to like it i couldn't adapt to it uh, the 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 foods weren't similar to the food we were used to the people they were welcoming but the, the language i think was a major barrier to communicate and me myself being i think i was a bit of an introvert so i didn't really to a lot of people that I wouldn't know. So it was also a bit of a hiccup on my side of things as well. You know, to get to know people, mm. try and settle in. I think that was a major problem that I had from my, my personal point of view. And while I was there as well, from that period, I also started, I think from about the second week, started, started to feel homesick. And it was just getting worse and worse. I was like battling to... To, to, to try and overcome this homesickness that I had. And uh, I think like after the second week or so, I had spoken to the, the management and told him, you know, this is the scenario and this is the, the situation that I'm in at the moment. 
Hmm. Day after we had, uh, they had taken a decision that, you know, because of the homesickness and all, they'll try and get me back home to South Africa. Okay. So you, you, you have the, as you said, you have the difficulties, you start missing home, which can happen because obviously you haven't traveled with any support structure to help you while there. Were the coaches in any way helpful in trying to decide to listen, well, Shane, this is a big opportunity. We can get your parents over in order to help you. We'll put you up with a family. Was that type of discussion ever brought to the front? No, unfortunately, uh, no, it actually wasn't actually brought up. Uh, they, they didn't actually give any counseling or sort of motivation for me to stay at that time. I, I don't even think they sat me down and tried and, you know, chat to me about the basis of, of why am I feeling homesick? Why is, what's the reasoning behind this or stuff like that? I think once I've communicated to them and then they've just take that information and pass it over to South Africa to Gordon, the, the guys that brought me up. Yeah. Mm, so I think that was, yeah. It. So you come back, the opportunity at that time is gone. You've come back. What, what was your next step after that? Now you come back into South Africa, obviously I'm sure you're feeling a bit despondent, but you're happy to be back home. Yes. What, what is your next step from that point onwards? Because you then move into multiple junior South African levels. Yeah, when I got back to, to South Africa, I think it was, it was August. And uh, the, the, the PSL League or NSL at that time had just started. So uh, I some guy had contacted me in regard to going to have a, a, a trial at Amazulu FC. Mike McCarver was the coach at the time. Okay. So we, we went for a trial and then I was fortunate enough to make it. And I started playing for Amazulu and at that time. Uh, I was, I actually ended up staying in Durban from leaving Germany. I was in Maritzburg, I think a week, uh, no, a month. And then afterwards, I then moved to Durban to stay in Durban, playing for Amazulu FC. In 1996, I then had left Amazulu and uh, came back to play for Maritzburg United. And at that time, we we were playing in the it's the league under the PSL. It's now called the Mutepe League. At that time, it would be called a different name. And at that time, we went to play for trials in Bloemfontein. I was fortunate enough to get selected for the under 20 team. And that's when my under 20 journey started at that tournament. Now, yes, you, yes, you said you were, you were playing professionally at Amazulu, as I said, a very big club. What were some of the highlights you had while you were playing for such a juggernaut of a team in Natal? I mean, I had a couple of highlights, but I think the biggest highlights I think at the time was when we were playing a league game against Orlando Pirates at Kings Park Stadium. And I think the coach put me on for twenty last twenty-five minutes. I think that was one of the one of the great moments that I can remember playing for Mazulu. I mean there's been other games we've played, but I don't think a team of that magnitude are played against during the stay at, at uh Amazulu. Okay. That, that, that. Because 
Yeah, because after okay. after I actually after the the Amazulu after the after the Amazulu came, I've actually I think two years later, I've actually had a a trial at Orlando Pirates and I've stayed there for like a month. And then I want to help you with certain setups and then idea of the lift, but I think I'd left the imprints on them while we played against them some years back. Shane, let's 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 dig into that. So you had the trial at Orlando Pirates. You moved from Amazulu to a Pirates. You are there for how long? A month. A month. And I didn't know this. I honestly didn't know this uh, about you. So you're there for a month. What goes on? Inform us. Okay. At, at that time, uh, the, the manager there, or the guy that organized the, the trip at Orlando Pirates was Lawrence Ngubani. And at the time, the things that he had told me and what he had promised me had not materialized. Also, when I got to, to there, they actually had no, I, they had said that I had said that I'd have my own place to stay and stuff like that. But when I got there, I had no place to stay. So I actually was bunking at the time with uh, Pumlani Keys and Rizuma. So it's a bit of a tight squeeze at the moment. I mean, for three of us to stay in one hotel room. I mean, uh, these are the things that were actually getting, but getting to me at the time. And every time I'd spoken to him, they say, I'll sort it out, they'll sort it out. And I said, no, I'm not happy with this kind of setup. And then I didn't return to Marisburg United. That's unfortunate because for, for our listeners listening, Orlando Pirates is one of the top three powerhouse teams in South Africa, serial league winners. Uh, one of the few teams that has won the, the, um, the Champions League equivalent in South Africa. It's just said that didn't work out that way. Yeah, it was a bit unfortunate at the time. Because, I mean, from, from where they were at that point to where they are now, they've actually grew in what I've heard. They've grown in leaps and bounds in terms of their professionalism and stuff like that. They've, when they bring players to the, to the club to, to have a trial, everything is set up way more professional. Now, there's two opportunities that you, two uh, areas that you spoke about. You spoke about Germany, you spoke about uh, London Pirates. And in both areas, if, from what I'm listening to, is a lack of support for people who are struggling with certain aspects. When you were the London Pirates, did you communicate these issues? Were they ever dealt with in order to try and keep you at the club? I did communicate it with Lawrence, who was the guy that brought me back, brought me there, but I didn't have a chance to speak to, to Mr. Corso, who was the chairman at the time, because I tried and get into contact him, but he was a bit busy at the time, because when they initially wanted me to come up, he actually personally came to my house to speak to me with Lawrence. And uh, he said, if I'm ever unhappy, I even need something that I should speak to him. But at the time, maybe because of his business and the magnitude of the team, I just couldn't get hold of him at the time to, you know, give him my grievances and maybe he could have sorted him out. This, un this is unfortunate. And, and this is one of the reasons we're also talking today, because when players have problems, because everybody just sees the superstar lifestyle of footballers, but everybody has problems and you need people to support you during this period. You've got two incidents 
where you haven't had that support that you needed. Yes, yes. I think uh, yeah, that was a stumbling block as well. Because I think sometimes maybe you have to just push through these, these problems in order to get to where you want to be, I think. That's true. That's at the true. time, I think at the time, maybe I was maybe a bit too, not mature enough, maybe I was a bit too young, maybe to just maybe try and fight it out and, you know, just push through the barriers in order to, to achieve what you want to achieve. You know, when I look back and I just think about, you know, the opportunities and stuff like that, I always think maybe if I was just a bit tougher, maybe I just, you know, just tried and fought a little bit harder, maybe things could have been a little bit different. But I don't have any regrets, you know, going, it is what it is. You and I know we're from a very football-crazed neighbourhood. Uh, youngsters love football. Football is a big thing in the areas we play. Are you still involved in football now, Shane? Yes, I'm actually, I actually work during the day, but in the evenings I'm actually coaching uh, Reunited. It's a Costa League team. I think it's like four tiers down from the PSL. Actually just coaching them, trying to give a little bit back what people before me have given me, you know. So that's what I'm busy with at the moment. Do you have, are you the manager of the team or, or do you have ambitions in becoming a manager? Well, in, in South Africa, the coach is a manager, like basically. So that's, that's what I'm doing at the moment. But I do have ambitions, but I just need to get the time to start like getting the levels, you know, yes. the accreditation, because you don't want to do something you're not qualified to do. I want to do it the right way. Mm. But they approached me because they were, they were, they, the coach had left him and they needed the coach urgently. So I thought, I mean, got a bit of knowledge let me try and give back well guys we've got everyone back around the braai b block was just me and courtney as you know but we've got brother francis and brother ahmed back and um ahmed you've been watching the premier league and you've got some interesting takeaways you'd like to share with us yeah i was um very impressed yesterday with uh elneny and uh Thomas Partey's uh, midfield partnership against uh, Manchester United obviously don't upset France too much, but you know, they really um, dominated. You know, a, a Man United midfield of, of four really, and uh, it was really good to see. Um, really good energy from El Nenny especially. Um, he was everywhere, running around the pitch, and this is a player who was written off by me and a lot of people um, at the start of this year. He was on loan to the sick at the Shiktas um, and played a lot for them. He played nearly every game. Um, came back and we were surprised, you know, with Mikel Arteta playing him, you know, why is this? And now we're really starting to see. Um, he had, he played 90 minutes midweek uh, in, in, in the Europa League and then came back and, and had an excellent performance in the sense that he was everywhere on that pitch. And it was that high energy and that high press. And, and there was a clip that Arsenal tweeted in the 91st minute of him uh, solo closing down three Arsenal players and winning a throw-in out of it in, in the dying seconds of the game at 1-0. And this is something that Arsenal have really missed. Um, I think that he's going to be playing much better because he has Thomas Partey. And, and also Thomas Partey brings that additional, um, you know, that creativity, that same high intensity, but he is, he's a better ball player than Elmeni. And I think together, they've got a really good partnership just as that too. Well, 
I can't really argue with that. But the one thing I can also say is uh, if a game at Old Trafford is your World Cup final, you kind of will have to give it your all. And that's what we saw, you know. <laughs> that's my only takeaway. <laughs> but in all honesty, you know, I think my my joy, uh, I, we were saying early on, uh, I was speaking with some friends, and I said, I think we were more, or the United team midfield wasn't on point. And so it was more one set was bad than another was good, in my opinion. Um, but what I loved about it is I've always been an El Nini fan. This is really weird. But I think he plays the destructive football uh, midfielder role really well. And he just, they used to ask for a lot more of him. Uh, and I think when he's asked just to do that, which is break up the play, uh, get your body in the way, do the simple pass and sit tight. There are few players who can do it as well as he does. And he's always been that player. The problem is he was asked to do other things. And so with the arrival of Partey, I think, comes the ability now for the team to say, hey, you do what you're good at. Partey, you do what you're good at. And I think we will see a really beautiful partnership at Arsenal. And what I like the most about it is it's an African partnership. So it's... So even though we lose at United, I don't feel hurt when an African twosome does a great job in the middle and another African scores the penalty given away by another African who plays for United. It's getting a bit too much now. Too many Africans on that pitch. <laughs> but it was beautiful to see. And I think it was a <laughs> You can never have too many. But I think Pogba was wearing an Arsenal kit underneath, in my opinion. But... Congrats to Arsenal. I, I was impressed with Arsenal yesterday. I just felt they, there was an element of resilience they never had before in that team. Uh, a bit of steeliness in midfield. Uh, I think the acquisition in defence of the, the, the defender, Gabriel, and they, they played with Holding and also Tierney in almost a back three as well, which I thought was... Uh, I never thought Tierney could play in that sort of defensive role. Um, I thought they were very good. Uh, I, I must say... For someone that loves loves Pogba, I love him. I don't know what's going on with him at the moment. And I'm not only talking about yesterday's game. Um, I'm concerned that the player we thought that Man United was buying is just not flourishing at this point in time. Um, and we just hope that sometimes it's a change of manager that brings the best out of a player. Example, El Nenny, who was going nowhere. And all of a sudden, he's this player that is now become a, a starter and crucial to Arsenal. I, I just hope that switch comes on because within Pogba at United, there is a world-class player just waiting to shoot off. So let's just hope that that happens soon. Well said. Well said, Courtney. Well, guys, it's been another brilliant episode of On The Whistle. We've had original content. We've got into some really good subject matter uh, with our panel and with our special guest, Sibasi Sumjigaliso. Um, so I've enjoyed it. The braai has been perfect. The coals are bright, hot, and red. And you know what? It's a good time to call it quits right now. So if you've enjoyed the show and you come this far, go on, leave a rating, leave a review. That helps people out there find what we do. All right, that's a wrap for now. Salagashle, guys. Fantastic, everybody. Have a good evening. Good evening, everyone.